1: Doc Searles, senior editor of Linux Journal and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, The Train Manifesto, goes on the record.
2: What is the difference between uh, Google blog search and Google's regular search? That's a really good controlled experiment. I mean, you get, you know, look, look at your brand in, in Google's regular search, and you'll find, uh, you'll find the front doors of the large buildings coming up first, and then you look at it in their blog search, and you find what customers are actually talking about.
1: And thanks for joining me for another episode of On the Record Online. If you're a regular listener of the show, uh, then you know that this is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. Uh, We talk to um, journalists from the mainstream media, as well as, from time to time, uh, influential bloggers, podcasters, and newsmakers. And we talk to them about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the business of media and advertising as we know it. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Uh, I am the uh, founder and uh, president of iPressroom Corporation. We are a marketing communications uh, uh, firm, and we help organizations integrate the web and new media into their marketing and communications and PR initiatives. I am also personally and professionally interested in how technology and the Internet are changing the way organizations communicate and the way people consume media entertainment and information. Today we have a one-on-one interview with Doc Searles. He is the senior editor of Linux Journal. He is also a co-author of the book, Coutrain Manifesto. That was a New York Times bestseller. And it was the, the book that basically said markets... Well, it, it was the book that did say markets are conversations Uh, he is a fascinating guy I've heard him uh, keynote at a number of different uh, events and have always been uh, absolutely blown away really blown away by what the guy has to say Um, he uh, has appeared on tech TV CNBC, CNET Radio um, he also, uh, is a participant in a podcast called The Gilmore Gang, and that's Steve Gilmore's podcast, not, not Dan Gilmore, his brother, actually, Steve Gilmore, does a podcast, uh, that's on the Pod Show Network, and Steve is also a brilliant guy, um, really interesting guy, and if you have a chance to, to listen to The Gilmore Gang, I think he'll enjoy it if you're interested in, uh, what's happening in the world of technology. Um... If you have suggestions for guests who you'd like to hear on the show in the future, we welcome your comments uh, and feedback. By, you can post that to the blog at www.spinfluencer.com or you can send me email to eric at... On the ontherecordpodcast.com. Uh, you can also pick up the feed through uh, most of the popular podcast directories um, like Yahoo and iTunes and Odeo and pretty much everything that's out there. Uh, easiest way to find it is to search my last name, uh, Keyword Schwartzman. Um, the other place you can pick up the feed uh, is uh, at the um, podcast website and that's online at www.ontherecordpodcast.com a uh, few interesting uh, upcoming events I'd like to plug the first is the Newcom Forum which is happening in Palo Alto March 1st 2nd and 3rd and uh, I've been uh, invited to podcast live from that uh, um, conference I'm looking forward to that because there are some really great people that are going to be speaking uh, the keynote is going to be uh, Robert Scoble and Shell uh, Israel the authors of Naked Conversations, so uh, hoping I get a chance to talk to them and some of the other people that are going to be there as well. I'm also going to be moderating the panel on podcasting uh, at that event, and uh, then on April 26th, at Moscone Center in San Francisco, I'll be moderating the panel on podcasting, and uh, we'll be talking about um, how podcasting uh could be an opportunity for advertisers. And uh, that should be interesting as well. Uh, I am also participating on the Programming Committee for the Public Relations Society of America's tech section. Uh, We are planning a conference in New York on June 27th, And uh, while we haven't confirmed any of the speakers yet, uh, we're talking to some very, very big names. And I think that could be a very exciting event too. So just some notes to uh, to, to jot down. so uh, the interview with uh, with Doc, I, did I say it? But if I didn't, I'll say it again. Uh, runs about um, uh, 57 minutes. Um, as always, it comes to you entirely unedited, uh, uncut, and um, uh, we are going to play it for you in its entirety. Uh, you know, actually, before I before I do that, the other thing I forgot to mention that I wanted to mention is that uh, Shell Holtz and Neville Hobson are going to be doing a sort of a podcasting workshop at the Newcom forum so if you're interested in learning how to podcast how to record how to generate uh, how, how to how to get the feed generated everything you need to do to, to basically distribute um uh, mp3s uh as on a subscription basis over the internet uh you can learn it from from shell holtz and neville hobson they also do the popular uh, podcast for immediate release the hobson and holtz report um and i'm a contributor to that show so uh, something to keep in mind. Um, very, very excited about that. Also, you know, been thinking it's probably something that that we should start doing ourselves here at uh, at I press Room. And uh, there's some talk now about potentially um, uh, the final Thursday of every month having a, a podcasters workshop uh, here at, at the office. So, um, if you want to follow uh, the developments on that, just you know, keep an eye on the the podcast website on the RecordPodcast com, and uh, you know, subscribe to the f- to the to the podcast feed. And you know, if if and when we decide to do that, uh, you'll be amongst the first to know about it. Um, so now without any further ado, I'd like to
0: play for the for you the uh, Doc Searles interview in its entirety after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom. Tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on even when you're off.
1: Doc, thanks Doc, a lot thanks for a taking lot. the time to do this. I appreciate it.
2: Now, welcome. Now,
1: now, I'd like to I'd like start to first by just asking you a little bit about your background, because I know you have a varied background in both communications, um, on, I think, on the marketing and PR side and on the editorial side. Correct?
2: Yeah, actually, there's a kind of a career arc that went there. I I started out. Oh my God, I'm, I'm 57. Oh my God, I was 58 years old. I lose track at this point. But I, when I got out of college in uh, 1969. Um, among the many things I went to work doing was, uh, was writing for local newspapers and, uh, and magazines. And so, uh, there was a, you know, I started out kind of as a journalist. I was trained as a journalist in the first place. And though I did many other things, I worked in retailing and, and, uh, drove an ice cream truck to help ends meet and stuff like that. Uh, my first, my first career was really journalism. And, uh, And I I did that off and on. I worked in radio. Uh, My nickname, Doc, is a fossil remnant of an identity I had for about 45 minutes on a little FM station in North Carolina uh, that was affiliated with Duke University uh, back in the mid-70s. Uh, A character called Dr. Day. We couldn't sell advertising, so we made up ads for things that didn't exist, and I had his character. Um, And that nickname kind of stuck. So Doc is a fossil remnant of that. And um, and actually, I started an ad agency with two uh, guys I met through that. Uh, they were listeners of mine, although they were really the, the prime movers behind the agency. That became Hodgkins, Simone, and Searles, uh, an agency that began in North Carolina, specialized in high-tech after a while. And then uh, we moved to Silicon Valley uh, because uh, we had a client there who said, you know, boys, there's more action on one street in Sunnyvale than there is in all in North Carolina. And so we uh, came out, saw that was so, and, and for a while we were one of the major high-tech advertising and then later PR agencies in Silicon Valley. I kind of ran the PR side after a while. I started out as a creative director with the ad side of the agency, then went over to do the PR. And, and, that, and what, what
1: was, year what was year that?
2: Was, oh, God, this was from, we started the agency in 78 or so, we moved... From north carolina in 85 or we opened the office in california in 85 in palo alto and then uh and so most of our most successful years that i was there was and from then until about 91 92 somewhere in there i uh i spun off on my own i found myself doing more and more uh direct consulting of ceos and uh and people that were higher up the uh the corporate ladder than the marketing and PR people, frankly. Though I was sympathetic to them, but often they didn't have much power, and I wanted to uh, relate to companies at a higher level than that. So um, I found myself working more and more at that level, and kind of turned the company into a marketing consultancy, which then spun off on its own. That was known as the Searles Group, which is still a um, an extant company, and I still consult. Uh, uh, more or less on the side doing that one cannot uh make a great living as a journalist alone so i do some of that as well but mostly i make my living writing and talking uh writing for linux journal and anybody else that wants me to lance uh, for them and uh uh and every so often i'll take money for a speaking gig sometimes uh usually if it's Involving Linux Journal or something like that, I'll just do it.
1: But um, Doc, like, your your background, background is, not, is technical, not technical, but you but seem you to have such have a good such grasp of technology, of technology issues. issues. I mean, is that just well, self-taught? It's, it's, there or? is a
2: te- there is a technical side. I I was a ham radio operator when I was a kid. Um, I've always been into electronics. Uh, um, I love the engineering side of radio. A lot of the for a while there in the late 70s, when I was uh, um, moving in and out of radio, and before we started the ad agency. Um, I made some money as a uh, as a uh, a broadcast engineering consultant, helping radio stations find transmitter sites and stuff like that. Uh, so I've always had a uh, a technical head. I've always enjoyed technology at that level. My, the the joke I tell about um, uh, about my technical proficiency with programmers is that the only code I know is Morse, um, and that's still that's still the case. I still know Morse code in the back of my head. That's how old I am so there's always been a i've always loved technology and i've always loved following it but i i always like looking at things at the high level i i i'll get down as low as i need to get but i like to see what the high level trends are what's what's going on I'm. i've always been uh an insightful kind of guy and i i like coming up with insights that are proven out over time i had a fun one today when i found out that uh that Disney bought Pixar, and I just put something up on my blog. It's something I predicted in uh, January 9th, 2004. So, uh, so that that kind of thing, looking at things at a higher level, like, um, and looking for the things that matter. Uh, one of the problems I always had with with uh, PR and advertising is so much of the time we were trying to take take something as it already was and put a paint job on it, and um, and try to sell it that way rather than looking for the ways that it might change the world that uh, it didn't really fit in the PR or advertising mold but were in some ways more important. So that's you know that's kind of where I've come from with technology.
1: So let's talk for a minute, if we can, about CES. Because I know you're obviously uh, one of the regular participants in the, the Gilmore Gang, Steve Gilmore's podcast on... Uh, right. on um, uh, a pod show and I have had a chance to talk to Steve a few times. I think he's a brilliant guy. And I was listening to what you were saying about uh the keynotes and I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the Larry Page keynote versus the Terry Samuel keynote.
2: I, I didn't I don't think I saw the Terry Samuel keynote. I saw the uh the Paul O'Tellini keynote. Um, uh, okay. And Paul is the uh the CEO now of um uh, of uh, Intel.
1: So then, the big question is, why didn't you see the Terry Selma keynote?
2: I I think I was busy. I think I was doing something else. The show is immense. Um, it's just it's just massive. Um, I may have had an appointment. I don't remember at this point, but I missed that one. But I did see. It, it was really interesting. I mean, it was it filled my brain to see those particular two keynotes. I was very interested in what Intel was up with with uh, the Vive platform, V I I V. Uh, they were very kind of unclear about what Vive meant. Was that a chip? Was that a um, a platform like Centrino, kind of a chip set on a on a board kind of thing? That, and it turns out it in fact is the latter, and it's it was really developed, I believe, or as as, as best he could say, along with Microsoft um, as a um, a sort of a PC centered um, multimedia delivery. Uh, platform that the PC OEMs could build um, multimedia PCs on, and, uh, and he talked about blowing up television with it and stuff like that. Well, one of the things that was interesting to me was that they obviously developed this with Microsoft, um, but Microsoft wasn't there. Uh, a guy from DirecTV was there. Various other Intel people were there. Uh, Michael Dell came in with a and uh, showed off a. A laptop the size of a suitcase that uh, has now the biggest screen on a laptop or something like that and they had some lame scripted jokes about um you know michael walking off with it so he could show off the handle and so paul wouldn't steal it um but the i i get the very strong sense that um microsoft was the old wife and apple was the new mistress uh and it's it's always been interesting to me how the oem business works uh... with with microsoft uh, it's been interesting to me from the standpoint of somebody who covers open source because um linux took off because essentially uh, uh... pcs your basic desktop pc is a white box it's it's a blank It's you know it's got intel inside and it doesn't necessarily have windows on it and it's not designed by windows it's was originally designed by uh... Um, you know by IBM and 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 Windows ran best on it and all that kind of stuff but it, but there was a platform there that Linux could grow and develop on we've never seen that with laptops uh, laptops have always been very closed they're all a little bit different it's very hard to make a generic Linux run on generic laptop there is no such thing really I don't think in a in a useful sense a, a white box laptop Doc, and, I, yeah. I,
1: I'd like to, if we can, switch sure. over to talk just a little bit about the um, the Google keynote, Larry Page. Okay. Because I was listening to you t- on the Gilmore Gang, and you were saying that you liked, um, the, I guess, the, for lack of a better word, the vulnerability that you saw in um, in his keynote—that he was unpolished and that he was natural and that that was that was forthcoming.
2: Yeah, I. It's. I mean, I don't know Larry Page really well. We've talked at conferences and things like that i was i was really surprised he was going to talk because he's not a born public speaker he kind of mumbles a bit uh, he doesn't speak up loudly he's a shy guy um, and uh, the, the, the google people told me the pr people that he had no media training whatsoever uh, which actually i mean at least in the sense of presenting himself uh, he carried around a stack of papers. Uh, he asked whoever was running the slides to back him up from time to time, and skipped over stuff. Uh, he was very, he was very natural in himself on stage, and he wanted to get some really good, um, gentle but pointed digs into the uh, consumer electronics business, uh, busting them, for example, for for ignoring standards like all the USB standards. He said we could plug a lot of things together and make a lot of things work well if you just look at the USB standards and and make it work. I mean, why? why have lots of, too many different ways of not working together, and and why make so many different kinds of power supplies rather than one kind of universal power supply that would work for everybody.
1: But, Doc, on, like on, on presentation style, I mean, the fact, the fact that, he, that was he was fairly unrehearsed, unrehearsed, unrehearsed and almost raw, uh, do, do you think I that think it, think makes it makes him, him more sympathetic, sympathetic as an individual? Do you think it, it makes him the type, the of, type person of person that, that the mainstream media, media would, would treat better
2: because better he's because less polished? Well, I th- I, th- I would think... I, naturally, I would think so. Um, I, I would not say, by the way, that it was completely unrehearsed and, and not prepared in some ways. I mean, he came out on a car. And right,
1: he, and there and were some you know, canned jokes. And in there, there. Yeah, there
2: there's some canned jokes in there. and, and um, uh, But it was such a remarkable um, contrast between his you know looking up from a stack of papers he had in his hand and Leslie Moonves from from CBS coming out and reading off a teleprompter in the back of the audience almost creepy, almost creepy. wasn't it it's really creepy and and I've heard him interviewed before and he's he's a really essentially you know a likable guy I think I mean I was kind of surprised that he did that it was so scripted and and the Yodelini speech was also very scripted, and the p- other people that spoke were also very. Is scripted. it,
1: possible, it possible that it was just by comparison, comparison you know, b- no, with these it, bookends it was so from Larry Page's speech? So
2: Larry, you know, that Larry was not reading from anything. You know, um, I mean, he was—he obviously had his kind of talking points together, and he had the things he was willing to talk about and willing to avoid. Um, but even afterwards, you know, when he took the Q and A with Robin Williams' help, which is a lot of fun. Um, uh, And Robin was very gentle with him. He could have, you know, he did make fun of him a little bit. Doc,
1: where were you watching? Were you in the
2: theater? Yeah, I was in the theater. I was about halfway back. Because I was was not in the
1: theater. I was Uh in the concierge tent in the parking lot across the street, Mm -hmm. watching it on a feed. And Uh when when Robin Williams came on, uh, the screen went blank, and they brought up a slide. And I'm going to read it to you. Here's what it said. Due to the proprietary nature of the content in this presentation, we must temporarily suspend the video and audio portion of this broadcast. Normal transmission will resume in a few moments, and then there was a CEA logo in the bottom right-hand corner of the feed, which was a little baffling to those of us in the tent because it's a closed-circuit feed.
2: That is really weird. And the
1: the same thing happened when they showed, they showed Google, Google Video Store. Store. We were all speculating, oh, they must be showing Google, some video product where they're showing trailers that they don't have the rights to be able to show you know, over the coast uh, to... Coast, uh, I,
2: I would imagine, I'm trying to remember what... I mean, I think Robin was just, um, you know, extemporizing on the stage, as he always does. But, I mean, it, it could be they squirted something up on the wall that was... You know, uh, copyrighted in some way. I mean, I do know that they're um, at CES. Um, uh, you know, exceptionally guarded about that kind of th- thing. Uh, I mean, I, this is unrelated, but for all I know, it might be related. Uh, I've been told that the unions are very strong there in Las Vegas, and there's all kinds of crap involving unions and and Wi-Fi. It's why you can't get good Wi-Fi at the in the uh, uh, in the halls, or just all kinds of weird stuff. But I really don't know that is embarrassing. Actually. You know this uh, the
1: same thing happened as I told you, you know when they were showing the the, the uh, Google Video Store and the reason I was wanted to talk about the Yahoo Go video announcement is because Terry Semel didn't have that problem and he was able to show the proprietary content and it was fed over. I watched it in the same concierge tent and that was not interrupted. And so mm. we were speculating. Hmm, I wonder if Google's flexing their muscles with with the Consumer Electronics Association. You know, what what that, happened behind you know, the scenes here?
2: I well, it could be one of two things. One is that um, it had to do with Robin Williams. Um, another is it. It. it, it I, 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 I I do not believe Google would do that on their own. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's not their kind of language. It's not something. I would imagine they'd try to do. I mean, uh, you know, Larry was, for the most part, making an appeal for openness, um, even though, you know, Google Video is closed and proprietary and runs runs only on Windows. You know, and you know they had this exclusive deal with, or maybe it's exclusive or not. I don't know. But you know, with CBS and, um, but, I don't know. I without knowing more actual data, I, I you know, that. There's, a, there's an expression doctors have for something they really can't diagnose called a fascinoma, and that strikes me as a fascinoma. I don't know. What, I don't even know what to do with that. It's really weird. Let's let's segue
1: over let's segue to, open to openness, to sure. because obviously that's something you're an expert in, particularly when mm-hmm. it comes to open source software. Now, a lot, now a lot of people who listen to this program, program probably have seen, seen Linux or open source in a headline, a, in a news story, but they may not they really know what the know impact what of open source software, software is on them. And so, yeah, if you could, could just, just sort of frame, frame from 40,000 square feet looking down uh, the the tension that exists today in the marketplace between open source software and proprietary software.
2: Okay, so... Um Open source is basically just a development methodology. Um, the source code is exposed and there are some understandings uh, around that source code that involves sharing. Uh, the, the, the virtue of open source is that it can be freely shared and uh, and so that it has no secrets essentially. And there are a number of different open source licenses and that can get all very complicated. But the, the, the fundamental thing about it, that at a perception level, open source Uh, very much like the net itself which by the way was developed almost entirely on open source principles and open source uh, software um, is that it's something that uh, has what uh, principles we call NEA NEA stands for nobody owns it everybody can use it and anybody can improve it Um, uh, this is the nobody owns it and everybody can use it would apply to sunlight and atmosphere and things and, and the moon and stuff like that but the uh, the anybody can improve it aspect of it means that it changes all the time and it constantly improves and we have better and better and better underlying infrastructure for all kinds of uh, fundamental things Like most, when you look at Google you're looking at, at Linux uh, when you look at Yahoo you're looking at BSD uh, which is another it's not so much a competitor of Linux it's just another oh boy I can't make that thing stop just ignore it in the background it's a uh, it's a phone in my room that rings through the whole house. Anyway, there's a, uh, uh, a t- you know, there's a these principles. Nobody owns it. Everybody can use it. Anybody can improve it. Result in constantly improving software that everybody can build on. So, um, probably the vast majority of servers in the world at this point are running on Linux. that that, that are exposed on the web. And Linux uh, is. is? Linux is the, an operating system. It's like Windows and like the Mac uh, OS. In fact, the Mac OS runs on BSD underneath. Underneath the proprietary Apple stuff is a non-proprietary foundation level uh, that's uh, called BSD. BSD is a form of Unix. So is Linux. is essentially a and and nobody Unix owns one. it. It's it's, it's but it. nobody owns it. I mean, it, you know, it, I mean, Linus Torvalds has the you know a trademark. Um, he's the original author of it, but um, Uh, there's no he doesn't make money from it Um, nobody makes money from it itself it's um it's kind of like uh if people could create their own geology and their own lumber to, to build with it's all building materials and we constantly improve these fundamental building materials and the old software model which is you you build what we call a silo you build something to trap people into it we're all familiar with these i mean things like like uh, Apple's iTunes and the iPod are in a silo. You can't use the iPod with anything but iTunes. When you buy a tune from the Apple Store, it only runs in iTunes, right It only runs um you can't i mean you can you can copy it off in the sense that you can play it out and and but you can't really you know copy the file itself to another computer and have it play because there's this stuff called DRM digital rights management that that prevent that. It's part of Apple's deal with the record industry to to restrict uh, unauthorized use. Um, but with, with Windows, I mean, you know, Windows applications only run on Windows. Mac applications only run on Mac. Um, the idea behind Linux is that you can make applications that run um, on many different Linux platforms, and, you know, it's essentially open. And open, and what it does for the world is it introduces uh, an almost... Um, I hate to use the term viral Viral is really the wrong word It's a contagious and in a positive way uh, Value system around openness Um, uh, Before we had the net We had a bunch of uh, um, Online services uh, CompuServe And and AOL And and, uh, Prodigy and None of them could talk to each other We still have that problem to some degree With instant messaging systems Where they're all silos They can't really relate to each other well we don't tolerate that much anymore we we want our systems to be open we want our software to be compatible um as much as possible we don't want stuff that runs only inside somebody's proprietary system and we're at a point in history where the general public is starting to get hip to this and and they're going to get more hip to it as we watch what happens in in media where it's moving in the other direction uh Uh, old-fashioned TV channels 2 through 13 was open you could put something up on there and that that content was just uh, broadcast out there you could record it on your VCR you could put it somewhere else and uh, you know it's no different than what you recorded with your camcorder and it was all open stuff well the new stuff coming down isn't gonna be like that you get uh, you know you get a CBS something from uh, Google video it's not gonna run with your Vive system with uh, uh, Microsoft and Intel, and you get uh, ABC stuff from Apple. It's going to run on your iPod, but it won't necessarily run on your uh, in your Google Player. And and it's all kind of fracturing up, and the DRM freaks are all trying to make this as hard as possible. But but because in addition
1: all, to the um, the interoperability, interoperability challenges, challenges that consumers, that consumers face. Consumers. What, what threats, threats do you think the open source, open source software, software movement, movement present to software companies, to companies software. like Microsoft and, and Apple? My, my,
2: my belief is they present no threat whatsoever. Um, it, it's not threatening any more than gravity threatens anything. Um, uh, if, if Microsoft can't figure out a way to make uh, software um, uh, and make money in the software business, um, then they don't deserve to live but they'll figure it out i mean they can run you know there's no- nothing to keep microsoft from running microsoft office on linux is just like it runs on the mac os um, it presents no, no threat to apple apple already uses it i mean apple already uses open source in uh, in its operating system apple struggled for years trying to improve its uh, its base operating system they had projects like copeland and and others where they kept trying to reinvent the wheel well what open source does is it says, you know what? There's some wheels we're not going to bother reinventing because they've already been done about a thousand times. Here's the best we've come up with, and go ahead and use it. It's free. Use it away. And but, that's. But you don't necessarily see it
1: replacing uh, Microsoft, Microsoft Windows, Windows or or the or the Mac OS.
2: Well, at the server level, you see it replacing Windows in a few places. Mostly, it replaces older uh, Unix uh, systems, and you don't see it replacing the Mac OS. It's not a threat. It's a, it's. If you have no imagination about how to what to do with software, yeah, it can be a threat, but it doesn't have to be. Um, um, Let, let's
1: talk for a minute, if we can, about just the issue of ownership and control. Mm-hmm. One of the things we saw, obviously... The Macintosh was a big hit when it came out. I remember, I bought a Mac, and I, I thought it would be, you know the, the next big thing. And uh, you know, obviously, they, they've been on, they were on a roller coaster ride for many years, and it was Microsoft that wound up uh, becoming the stock to buy, at least. And I wonder, what, if any, lesson, um, we might be able to draw from that with respect to uh, the iPod and, and the, the sort of the, the, the iTunes silo that you just spoke about.
2: Well, you know, they're, they're, it's sort of like we're dealing with apples and oranges and grapes here. Uh, with the, the, the Mac OS was a brilliant invention in its time, and it still is. Apple's continued to uh, innovate all kinds of clever ways. Um, uh, where Apple ran into trouble, really, was they had an expensive product that, wasn't, um, that only came from one manufacturer. Um, Microsoft, to its credit, created a relatively open system. Uh, dos was vastly inferior to the mac os and windows ninety five was also marginally inferior to the mac os but in one critical way it was far superior which is that it would run on many different machines from many different manufacturers it still only ran on one operating system it only was one operating system but that wasn't an issue for a very long time for most people it was not a big issue um... Now today it's becoming a bit more of an issue um... Uh, and as for, for Apple and the, the closeness of iTunes and uh, and uh, and the iPod, well, it's a, it's a trade-off involved. I mean, nobody else makes a competing product with iPod. It just, nobody knows how to do it better than Apple does. It's a remarkable thing, and I think actually that's true with computers right now. Um, Apple's ability to, uh, the, the ability they provide to plug anything into a Macintosh system, any any random scanner or um, camcorder or uh, a flash card reader, or you name it, um, is really remarkable. They did a terrific job with that. They they developed a lot of those device drivers all on their own because the manufacturers weren't cooperating with them, and they deserve kudos for that. Right now, a, a Macintosh is a very compatible device uh, to use, and it's very very easy to deal with and and i think that's you know that's an advantage there's a lot of closed aspects to it and i'm as frustrated by those in some ways as the next guy but the you know credit where due they've you know they've done a good job with that we're always going to have a bit of a tug between um opening stuff and closing stuff knowing what to open and knowing what to close um and i think in the long run when it comes to infrastructural stuff uh the base operating system, the internet, uh, networking. um, You know, the open will win out uh, because there's no use arguing over it. You you build whole industries on the stuff that's already open and already working.
1: Now, Doc, I heard something about IBM recently releasing a bunch of patents, basically Mm -hmm. opening access to code, and apparently Microsoft's doing something similar but not as aggressive. Can you tell us about that?
2: Well, what happened with, um, well, first of all, the, I have to say the patent system, almost everybody who's involved in it will agree, is unbelievably deeply screwed up. We we issue 10 times as many patents as we ought to. We allow things like business methods and software itself to be patented when I think a, a very good argument can be made that it's a, those are silly and wrong and, and anti-progressive things to allow the patenting of. We allow... Submarine patents, like the ones that these guys that are successfully, unfortunately, suing Rim for, uh, it's possible to get a patent and never build anything with it, and then wait for somebody to come along and sue their pants off and collect for it. That's that's a wrong thing. So, big companies like IBM, which which manufacture patents by the bucket load, are in a trading business all the time. They're trading those patents. they they hold what amount to kind of like nuclear. Um, Showdown uh, meetings with other patent holders to decide which ones they're going to execute, which ones they won't. Which you know, the, all this stuff ends up being negotiated. IBM realized that their uh, a bunch of patents that they hold did them no good whatsoever, given their other value system, which is openness, especially around Linux and open source development. They realized that holding these patents and the threats that those patents posed in the long run was actually a liability rather than an asset they regard patents generally as an asset but having openness and having this infrastructure out there um... was really to their advantage uh... so they decided to to not to to release these patents and and not uh... and essentially make them non-dangerous uh... uh microsoft historically had had a very anti-patent um... uh perspective and it was laudable bill gates is on the record talking about how patents were a bad thing and and so forth but then after a number of lawsuits and losses in court and other things like that uh they decided to become as aggressive about patenting as any other large company and so they're playing that game now too um and that's but we're going to see more of this kind of thing where large companies that hold big patent portfolios are going to see Far more leverage in in making those patents harmless to anybody else innovating around those subjects than to um, than to use those thre- uh, those patents as a way to control markets.
1: There seems to be a good deal of, of excitement now amongst venture capitalists and people in the technology uh, s- investing financial services sector. You know, they're throwing a lot of money at. Um, uh, open source startups. Do you think we're in a bit of a bubble right now, as far as open source startups are, are concerned?
2: Well, we were in a huge bubble in 1999. Um, uh, Linux companies were way, way overvalued when uh, when VA Linux and Andover and um, and Red Hat came out. Uh, those were all monstrous. IPOs, really the, the, they were the last of the giant IPOs that, that happened in 1999 um, that in many ways caused the crash of 2000 um, so we've been through a bubble once before uh, with open source um, right now there is a kind of surf's up um, vibe around Silicon Valley, there's a lot of venture money chasing uh, uh, chasing startups at the moment I don't think that has much to do with open source, we're, we're the appeal of open source is that you can you can um build on infrastructure rather easily and quickly uh and and, and make things happen. It's just that the open source is an environment that makes um invention and innovation um a lot easier. There's just a lot more stuff out there that you can develop on. Uh and and there I mean just in blogging alone, I mean look what's happened with, with podcasting and RSS. Um uh, the people around the Burton Center at, at Harvard, uh, some of them have created a, a venture fund just for funding uh, companies that are doing s- interesting stuff with RSS um, that's I mean RSS was pretty much invented and, just and, and promulgated by Dave Weiner um, he's pointed out recently not coming out of the tech industry but coming out of the publishing industry for monstrously practical purposes and RSS is changing the world and that's not something that came from big companies there's lots of cool stuff that's open and changing the world coming from small companies and I mean that's always been the the belief around venture capital funding small companies but the idea now isn't that you come out with a piece of software and lock the world into it and then you charge rent for that in perpetuity rather it's that you either introduce or make the most of uh, an existing um, open source based infrastructure that Enlarges the world, allowing new industries to flourish where your company gets the first mover advantage. So, and uh, we see a lot of that going on right now. I know a number of companies. I'm in, uh, involved with one called Spike Source. I, I, I consult them and I'm on their advisory board. And, you know, they do, uh, 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 you know, what they pay attention to is all of the many different ways that open source software. Uh, can't get along and needs to find out how they can get along, but endless new versions of open source uh, components are coming out all the time how do you how do you get them all to work together there's a there's a big what what works with what question so so they you know they're taking advantage of the abundance of open source software out there to build a new business on on testing and uh, and providing certification and stuff like that.
1: Let's talk for a minute about uh, your role as Senior Editor of Linux Journal. Mm-hmm. Um, do you use RSS to keep up to date on news? How do you oh, yeah. use technology to cover your beat?
2: Okay. Well, uh, first of all, Linux Journal, my, my title is Senior Editor. My joke about that is that I'm the oldest editor on staff, but, the, uh, but basically I'm the business editor. I, I'm, I'm the guy who looks at what Linux and open source and free software. Uh, there's a subtle distinction between those two. Maybe not worth going into. Um, uh, work with business. What 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 happens there? Uh, since you mentioned RSS, uh, um, I I subscribe aggressively to topic searches on Technorati, on uh, on PubSub, on IceRocket, on Google Blog Search, on Feedster. Uh, these are all these are all search engines that cover what we're starting to call the live web. This is not the static web of, of sites that you design and architect, but rather of uh, publications, essentially. The blogs and, and uh, podcasts and other, um, other sources of fresh live uh, content. I, if somebody um, writes something new and puts out and, and publishes it and that goes out with an RSS feed, uh, Technorati, for example, is going to know about that within minutes and I'll be able to find that in a search. And I subscribe to searches for topics. So for example, today, I could subscribe to a search for Pixar and Disney and jobs and and see what comes up. Or because I just published something that said I predicted that, that those guys would get together two years ago, I could subscribe to a search for those plus my surname. Um, uh, in this case, I'm not following a particular blog, I'm following a particular subject. This is really important for the marketing uh communications professionals out there they're busy often trying to drive a subject or follow a particular subject looking at these live web search engines um and getting a a a technorati or a a pub sub watch list and and looking at the river of uh of uh of fresh uh, posts that are going on on these particular subjects is an it's a huge eye-opener i mean it's in some ways, it's like drinking from a fire hose, but it's a very—you get to make your own fire hose. It isn't just all of news in the world; it's it's the news that you choose to follow, based on a keyword search.
1: So, what are some what are of, the, some of you know, the you know keywords, keywords that you're that, that you're in searching events. in these, uh, in, in Technorati and Ice Rocket, Ice Rocket and PubSub? And Pub/Sub. I mean, if oh I if I was representing an open source software company and I wanted you to see some news and I put it up on the website and I went to Delicious to assign some tags to it, what what would be the keywords you'd be following?
2: Okay, so for example, right now I'd be following uh, uh, Live Web, for example, or the Live Web. Um, that's a tough one in some ways because some you know it, it isn't always in context, but I'll look for Live Web. And Schwartzman, or um, uh, if um, uh, if we take a subject like saving the, saving the net, okay. So back in November, I wrote a really huge piece for Linux Journal, about twelve thousand words long, that um, expressed my concerns uh, uh, about what the carriers, the the cable and phone companies, wanted to do to essentially privatize uh the public web right now we have an assumption about the web that that nobody's no one site no one source no one participant is favored in some way um that is essentially a peer-to-peer system they want to change that and um or some of them want to change that at least and they're they're making threatening sounds about that there's a telecom act uh, that we're going to get sometime late this year maybe um these guys are lobbying congress hard so so I have regular, you know. I have Technorati and PubSub and and, uh, and Google Blog Search, for example, all looking uh, for save uh, saving the net or save the net, and I might mix in the word telco or carriers along with that, and have uh, in my aggregator. I, there's a, a kind of a kind of software called an aggregator, um, and listeners might just look that up and find one that works for them uh, on the. On, on the Mac, I use one called uh, NetNewsWire. There's one called an desk that I use on uh, on Linux. Uh, but on NetNewsWire, I'll look at those searches. I'll see. I'll just refresh, and I'll see all of these new posts that may have been made in the last uh, few minutes or few hours. So, so it's
1: almost like so it's I almost guess like uh, replacing, replacing the newswires. The newswire.
2: Oh, totally! It totally replaces the news wires for me. I mean, are I, you I'm,
1: also are pulling also PR pull Newswire, news Business news wire, wire into it? I never it? look at those.
2: I never look at those, um, and I should say, I, if if somebody sends me a press release, I never look at those either. Um, it's too manufactured. It's too, too canned. I want to see the real deal. I want to see what people are really talking about. Um, and, so and let's say you you, yeah. you
1: um. You're looking in the Net News desk, you said? Net Newswire?
2: Net Newswire, yeah. Okay, you're looking at Net, net
1: Newswire net and you, you you happen onto happen a post on a blog, blog that's interesting to you. Um, are you going to want to click through that blog to a corporate website? And if so, what role will that website play in shaping your perception of that news? I mean, is, yeah, is the it corporate really website about important?
2: The you know for, first of all most of what I'm going to be seeing is coming from a journal um rather than a site and I think we're going to start making distinctions about uh, between those um, um, Sites tend to be static and uh blogs especially uh are journals they're they are actual journals they're live journals that are they have dates on them they're chronological they're updated frequently uh the more active ones are um you're 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 looking there at something that really is a a virtual and very real newswire, uh, and and the content is actually displayed in the uh, in the aggregator. Now it depends on the source, and some some sources only give you headlines and a, and a little bit of text. Other sources give you full text. Um, if if the full text is there, um, I can I may not even go to the blog. But the links work, see, so I may follow a link somewhere there, so it's quite possible that I'll skip um, the source of that blog post itself and go to the uh, and go to wherever they happen to point. if that goes back to a corporate site that's great I mean it it all depends. I think that the burden here on everybody and everything is to be useful and to be um, open and to be participatory um, it, be involved in your. Marketplace don't just put up some, you know, some PRBS that that's that's a message of some sort. But there's no, there's never been a market for messages. Nobody's ever wanted to, you know, sat down at the computer or sat down at the TV and said, "Geez, I wonder what messages people are sending me today." Uh, they never do. They they want to know what's going on, and if a company wants um, uh, is involved in a marketplace and uh, and they want to do something with that marketplace. Uh, they they need to be involved in it. They need to have as many people as possible inside and outside the company writing about that in their journals and blogging about it. And sooner or later, the you know the flow and the interest comes back to the company, and the company serves its correct purpose as as an authoritative original source of uh, information and wisdom about that particular um, market category. Uh, so it's it's really all a matter of participation at this point. Participation used to be much more, um, you know, remote, top down. You never really knew what was going on. You know, you'd you'd put out some press releases, you put something on the wire, and wait to see what happened, and you know, get your clip reports and crap like that. Now you couldn't even begin to keep up with all the with all of the clippings, as it were. Um, I mean, you can tell who's worth more than whom, all, often by looking at you know, technora. Excuse me, Technorati, for example, will rank people or rank bloggers as being, you know, in the number five thousand or eighty thousand or something else like that. But that may not even matter because if your topic is a narrow one, you may want nothing but, you know, uh, blogs that are maybe in the, you know, fifty to eighty thousand rank range, but they're all around your subject. I mean, a really good example is one that uh, I learned about uh, last spring when. Uh, when Victoria's Secret came out with a new bra called the Ipex I-P-E-X and um, a friend of mine who used to be in in, uh, in the fashion business was talking with somebody from Victoria's Secret who said we came out with this bra and we really don't know what people are thinking yet and so we're going to have to uh, do focus groups and stuff like that and he said why don't you just take a look at what the bloggers are saying and the person from Victoria's Secret said well, what's that and he showed them Uh, Technorati, let's take a look and see what is being said on here, let's just look up IPEX bra and here were hundreds and hundreds of women talking to each other about their experience with Victoria's Secret and the IPEX bra, mostly positive but the kind of stuff you would never get in a focus group, stuff that was honest and and helpful and a real mind blower for the person who was uh, seeing this for the first time, this is a whole new way to look at your marketplace, listen to the conversation that's actually going on out there.
1: But but just as software companies may be somewhat resistant to uh, opening up their source code and making it available to everybody, people in marketing and PR are used to controlling their brand. In a lot of cases, these are companies that make a product you're talking about Victoria's Secret. They make a bra. They're not necessarily communicators. You know, they, they make a product, maybe a good one, maybe a bad one. But they may not be as skilled in communicating about that product publicly. And there seems to be, at least from my perspective, a lot of fear in the marketplace about really embracing these new media channels for communications. In many cases, I'll come up against a brand manager who loves it and says, "Hey, let's do this. This is great," but then they struggle internally to sell that initiative um, to their people in their organization. So, I mean, what what would you say? And I, I know, obviously, you know, this is not not your your area, but certainly you are an evangelist for new media, and you speak at many conferences on the subject. I mean, what what do you say to the brand manager from a company that's not necessarily a media company, not necessarily up to stuff on how to communicate through new media, and, and is, is is legitimately afraid about being able to deal with negative feedback online. What do you tell them?
2: Well, I, I, I would tell them the the environment has changed, and they can either adapt to it or they can fight it. There's no, there's no point in fighting it. There's no point in ignoring it. Um, I think the... Uh, the challenge for somebody trying to persuade one of those brand managers um, uh, is simply to, you know, get a net connection, get a, you know, get a projector, hook it up to the, com- you know, hook it up to the laptop, and and do the research live. Say, okay, here's our brand, you know, here let's do some searches on that brand right now. Let's see what we find out. Take a look at that, and then say, how much are you managing this? How do you manage that? Can you manage that? Is manage even the right word for this anymore? Um I think it probably is to some degree, but um, even if you look at um, the the late great Peter Drucker, who is the world's authority on management, it was you know, to him management was all about what you do with your employees and what you do with your customers. and uh, um, it wasn't about some kind of military command and control system it was It was about participating in your markets, and there are more and more and more ways to participate now. Uh, I think the the challenge for brand managers is to get their heads around the, all these new ways there are to participate. It's not. It's. I think it's a fun challenge. It's not a. Uh, it's not a threat. It's just it's it's, it's opportunity in, in spades. And how do you deal with that? Well, you get on top of it. I mean, you, you look at what uh, you know. What what is the difference between uh, Google blog search and Google's regular search? That's a really good controlled experiment. I mean, you get you know look look at your brand in in Google's regular search and you'll find uh, you'll find the front doors of the large buildings coming up first and then you look at it in their blog search and you find what customers are actually talking about and 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 other people participating in the market third parties um, you know partners people up and down all kinds of value chains that that are involved in these markets Um, that's that's what you're going to find there again, you know, it, it also depends on the, on the nature of the business I've, I've talked to people, for example at pharmaceutical companies who say, geez, you know, we, we'd love to have conversations and so forth but our, our speech is, is regulated I mean, we, the, you know Food and Drug Administration regulates what we can say in, in all kinds of media but even there, what you do is you have to pay attention to what are people saying about Xantax uh, or Tylenol or whatever your drug happens to be um, it's still important to know what the what the market is saying and and how you interact with that. Um, that's you know do the intelligence work. There's an awful lot of ways to find intelligence out there in the uh, in the marketplace now. Doc, how does
1: how the does live the web, web expose, expose many of advertising's near fatal, fatal flaws? flaws. Well, th- th-
2: the largest. <laughs> A uh, near fatal flaw of ad, of old-fashioned advertising, the kind that we see on the, the Toyota Thon on TV and and uh, and the large display ads in the newspapers, the the ones that are often just pure branding, uh, is inefficiency. Uh, most of the money is wasted. You don't know where it's going. Uh, you know it's going out on the air. Uh, you get a report back saying, "Well, the ratings said we had so many exposures." Um, those exposures are are bull, and they always have been. We we ignore ads uh, uh, wholesale they may they may be able to find that they have some effects downstream but for the most part old-fashioned advertising is not accountable is largely wasteful and um... and is going to be more and more problematic over time what um... uh... what google really did a wonderful job of doing with introducing with adwords and adsense is very granular accountable advertising you pay just for the click Uh, you pay what the click is worth they have this kind of auction system where where the more valuable words get bid up and uh, uh, you know it has after three or four years or whatever it's been it it has its flaws it has its shortcomings there you know we have blog spam now which are known as splogs fake blogs that are meant to siphon off uh, adsense money for clicks you have click fraud i mean one company um, may Bankrupt another company to some degree by, by you know paying a bunch of their employees to click all over something just to make sure the other, their competitor you know, uh, gets too many clicks and nothing happens from them, uh, but for the most part that's that that's a you know almost a red herring. The the I mean, Google has done a terrific job of changing the way that we look at advertising and. Uh, and they are you know they're going to probably continue to succeed at that they need some competitors I think they've got a bit of a monoculture right now but for the most part they've they've changed that game but inefficiency is really the main problem with advertising the long-term problem with it is that it's all on the supply side it's something the supply side does to generate and not necessarily satisfy demand the holy grail is going to be helping demand find supply Um, I want a rental car. Help me find a rental car. I want, I want to rent a place in Maui uh, three weeks from Tuesday. Um, I want it to be on the beach. I don't want it to be more than three hundred dollars. And I don't want to have to go out in the web to you know, uh, f- float like a bee from flower to flower to flower looking for that hotel. And uh, and I don't want to have to depend on the inefficiencies in in credit where due, Orbitz and uh, and ITN and uh, Travelocity. They're still they have their flaws too. I want demand, my demand, to find the supply that's out there. We, had, we don't have the system for that yet. I think that that's the one that's going to change everything when somebody figures out how to do it.
1: Um, I'd I like to just, just ask a few ask questions, questions in closing, closing about, about the privatization of the net. Now, yeah. You wrote a very, very uh, interesting, interesting uh, post, post about... about essentially the battle being fought inside the beltway by the carriers and the telecoms to right. impose tariffs uh, on data packets traveling over the Internet. Right. And at Syndicate, there was a, a woman who stood up and asked you a question on the keynote, and she was seemed like she was very connected politically. She was a blogger or something. I don't remember her name. Hmm. Do you remember, do you remember? She, she, stood no. she stood up?
2: I do remember somebody stood
1: up. You knew up. her name, and and she, was, she does some
2: sort of uh, opinion... Oh, Uh, was it Chris Nolan? Chris Nolan from uh, Spot On? Yes, I think it
1: was. And she challenged that. She said, hey, that's not realistic. It's not going to go that way. And it was interesting because I I read it and I was floored and I thought, oh, this is the future. We're going into the dark ages.
2: I mean... Well, Chris's point is that, um, just as a background there, um, uh, the, the piece that I wrote was called Saving the Net. And if you look up those three words in Google, you'll find it. Uh and uh it it posed three scenarios. The first scenario was one where the telcos essentially the telcos and the cable um essentially win what they want uh from the marketplace and from Congress, where they'll essentially divide the net up uh so that um you know that only certain people get certain content and uh and uh, you know certain you know they'll essentially privatize it as much as possible without being any more detailed in that but but change the net from the experience, from the thing we experience now, uh, a wide open marketplace to something that's essentially um, a, a walled private garden or your choice of walled private garden. And the second scenario is one where um, where in fact the net, we realize the net is just too open for that to ever happen. There's still too many choices out there, it doesn't matter how much these guys try to lock things down. Uh, there are going to be companies like Google that'll buy up lots and lots of fiber and um, and put Wi-Fi in cities and we get our workaround. We get the Muni Wi-Fi workaround. And, uh, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll essentially route around that problem. And the third scenario was when we recognize that um, we really don't have a good definition of what the net is yet. We don't even know what the heck we're trying to protect. If you ask somebody what the net is, uh, you get a lot of different answers. And I was suggesting we need to recognize the net fundamentally as a new place uh, that is a wide open and free marketplace and that needs to be preserved as a marketplace and and that language has a great deal to do with that and I wrote about how that works now what Chris was saying was that, and she's a political realist she's very tied into Washington she knows how the sausage is made and she was saying look the telco, the, the, the telecom the new telecom act is being made it's a power politics thing happening in Washington, all you techies are not on top of this thing, you do not have the marketing, I mean the uh, the lobbying clout that these other guys have you've been sitting on your hands forever uh... you think that uh... that you know the 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 pure and open nature of the net is going to save your butts and it's not and you need to get real and you need to start playing political hardball you need to find out what's really going on and and the truth is there's some truth to every one of those things uh... so um, you know just but i think that we th- there really is a groundswell right now to really start fighting for this thing to really and and I think it's an interesting thing that every time uh, and Ed Whitaker from SBC or whoever this guy was from uh, Bell South uh, recently stood up, this is the New York Times piece that ran I think a week, two weekends ago, um, and says, well, we're just going to start you know, offering tiered service and uh, Yahoo and Google get in first and the rest of you guys don't, but they have to pay for that. I mean, Google almost immediately or maybe a few days later came out and said, screw that, we have no inter- interest in doing that whatsoever, you know. Um, to hell with you and a horse you rode in on you know, Suez, you know, basically and to their enormous credit and I think that's, you know, and, and somebody else did a survey that showed that n- nobody wanted what, the, what that particular telco proposed. I mean, that's not something customers want. Um, customers want symmetrical broadband to their house. That's what they want. Symmetrical meaning you can upload as fast as you can download, which five, seven years ago didn't matter because you're mostly downloading, but now you want offsite storage, you want to do backup offsite you want to uh put photos up on Flickr. you want to upload and cross load and otherwise unload uh large video files having asymmetrical service based on the old cable t v. model is not something customers really want much anymore um and we're gonna see a fight for that and uh I think it's very likely in the next year that there will be a groundswell of popular support. Uh, for the open and symmetrical internet that we uh, know and love and haven't really understood very well so far uh, but it's going to take a lot of effort there are, and I know a number of, of organizations that are forming around that topic right I've already had I had two meals today at breakfast and lunch talking with people here in Santa Barbara about mobilizing around that particular subject so I'm very optimistic about something happening there doc, doc thanks, doc, for, joining thanks for joining us oh thank you appreciate it